to Psalm 127. And as I've said before, as we are reading through the Psalms together, we read 10 Psalms a week, two a day, Monday through Friday, with the weekend to catch up. We're nearing the end with just a few more sermons left in this series. And I'm picking one of those 10 to be the passage from which I'll preach on Sundays. And I try to select various kinds of Psalms. There's different kinds. There's Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament. Um, And this is a psalm that we would call a wisdom psalm. It's trying to give wisdom to God's people. And so I think you'll see that reflected in Psalm 127 in these five short verses. Let's read God's word together. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, today we uh, are observing the Lord's Supper, and I'll give some more instructions for that at the, uh, after the uh, prayer at the close of the sermon today. But I just mention it now because that means we won't have kingdom kids for our little ones, so they're going to stay in the service with us. Some of them are baptized already and are ready to take the Lord's Supper. Um, and we did something a little different this time. We wanted to have a keepsake for those who are observing the Lord's Supper for the first time. And we have one with us who also has a birthday today, Miss Ava Grace Singleton, my daughter, who turned 10 today. She's taking Lord's Supper for the first time today. So we have a little keepsake. It's a Lord's Supper communion cup that's made out of olive wood from the Holy Land. And so if you are doing Lord's Supper for the first time, adult or child, we have these for you. Rosemary's going to get you one today. And if you have a child that maybe has already taken the Lord's Supper once, but, you know, that was a while ago and you didn't get a keepsake, we want you to get one too. So we've got one for you as well, all right? So that's coming later in the service. But now we are going to focus on Psalm 127. And before we dive into this uh, wonderful psalm, I want to pray for us together. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a beautiful day to be in this place together. We do not take this for granted. Father God, we recognize and pray for the many brothers and sisters in Christ who are not free to publicly worship you, who have to fear for their lives or their livelihood just together in your name and so God, we pray that their witness and testimony would continue to encourage us who have such wonderful freedoms and their testimony would spread in the places in which they live and serve you. For us, God, we gather in without worry or fear. We gather in freedom and with gratitude for that freedom. We know that great sacrifice was made so that we could have that freedom. And whether it was made or not, we are your children. We come to worship you. We come together. Father, we could have stayed home and worshiped you, but there's something special and important. And you have called us to come together 
on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the day your son Jesus rose from the dead, that we might together sing to you and sing to one another, worship you, but worship with one another, and to turn our eyes together to your word, to hear from you. We come to the Bible this morning, Father, believing that it is your word spoken through your Holy Spirit, inspiring men to write it down, that we might know something of you, something of ourselves, and this life that you've called us to, and we want to press into that this morning. So, Father, open our ears to hear from you. Soften our hearts to receive the message you have for us, and prepare our hands to leave to, from this place ready to do your will, to do whatever it is that you have called us to do. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, one thing that stands out in Psalm 127 is that in this one psalm, it covers the most fundamental areas in all of life. Begins with shelter, building a home, having a place to sleep at night, a place to stay warm in the winter for those few weeks that it lasts in South Texas, and to stay cool in the summer for those many, many months that we get to experience in South Texas. It's not just shelter, though. Psalm 127 also deals with safety or security, something that may be a little bit different for us. We don't live in a city with walls around it like they did back then, but that is what they would do. You had to have walls around your city to secure it from other people, and you'd have to put people on those walls to look out for the enemy, that if they come, they can alert the army to take their post and protect the city. Not too hard for us to understand that. We lock our doors at night. We may have a security system. We may have, you know, a few things around the house to kind of protect ourselves. For them, it was citywide. For us, it may just be in our home. But security is something that we would all say that's kind of a fundamental thing in life is to have not only a home, but a secure and safe home. The psalmist then moves on to talk about another staple in life, which is the staples of life, food. They have enough food to eat, something that we all absolutely must have on a regular basis. Some of us get a little too regular. I won't say who, but maybe me, maybe some of you, okay? But that's a necessity of life, a staple of life, and the psalmist mentions this. Another core element of life, fundamental area of life that he addresses is children, and in their day, you know, in agrarian society, the more kids you had, the more you had that could, you know, take care of the sheep, help bring in the harvest, and also give protection to the family. You've got your own little warrior clan right there, right? And you train them up to be a part of that. But you see, the psalmist covers a wide variety of the most staple things that we need in life, from a home to security, to food on the table, to children around the table. These things that are part of our everyday life. And yet he says something really important. He uses a word here that I want to draw our attention to. He also says that even in these most fundamental areas of our life, we can experience them, live them, even enjoy them, in vanity. We can live out the fundamental areas of our life and even enjoy the fundamental areas of our life 
and yet do so in vanity. Now, I'm curious about that word because sometimes we think of the word vain and we think of someone who's, you know, overly concerned with how they look. You know, someone who stands in front of the mirror for very long periods of time, does lots of things to make sure that they look good. You already can tell I ain't one of those, right? Maybe you're not either, but that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about that kind of vain, over-attention to how you look. It's not talking about that. The vein here comes from a Hebrew word that means nothing, empty, or worthless. That's what vain is talking about. It's talking about when we live life in vain, we are living a nothing, empty, worthless kind of life. And I think this has everything to do with the aims of our life, not necessarily the subjects of our life. The subjects here are for everybody. Home, shelter, children, security, safety, all that stuff, food on the table. That's, that's everybody's everyday life. But it's not, I think it's not talking about living that out. It's talking about how we live out those ordinary yet fundamental areas of our life. And there's a way in which we can live out those ordinary, everyday, fundamental areas of our life that actually amounts to nothing. It's actually empty and worthless. And it has to do with our aim. If we're aiming for something and it's not worth aiming at, then our lives have been lived in vain. We are living a nothing, an empty life, a worthless life, where nothing of real substance will be gained in the end. Again, it's possible to live out all of these areas of life without God. And what the psalmist says here is when we do that, we are doing so in vain. So our goal in life could be, you know, just to eke out a living, raised, mostly well-adjusted and happy children, enjoy a few years here on earth and hopefully die in, you know, old age without any real pain or suffering. That might be our aim. Now, some people may try to aim higher than that. Some people may want to aim towards promotions and nicer houses and fancier cars, bigger platforms, fame. They want rock star children and grandchildren. Sounds pretty good. In fact, I think about this. The more, ki- the more money my kids and grandkids make, the better off I'm going to be when I get older, because I'm going to need some help, right? Maybe that's our aim. We're, we're aiming higher than just an average, ordinary life. But either aim is an aim that's actually too low, according to Scripture. The most glorious and glamorous life that this world can offer, the psalmist is saying, is lived in vain if God is not in it. And if God's not in it, it won't last. Whatever we gain in this life is going to be lost. It's going to be lost to death. One day we will pass from this earth, to the, from, from this earth, from this life to the next, and we take nothing with us. I've done this little exercise before. I'll admit it's a little bit depressing, but just hang with me, okay? Just don't tune me out and don't get too upset. It ends better than you think. Okay, all right, here we go. How many of you, we're going to do a show of hands, all right? You're going to participate here. How many of you know your grandparents' names? All of them. Okay, that's good. Now keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. I know. Just hang in there. Keep your hand up if you know your great-grandparents' names. All of them. 
How many of you know your great-great-grandparents' names? Okay, look around the room. I see two hands. What's the point? Your name will be forgotten by the people you bring into this world. Now, you think that that's a depressing thought, but here's the point. Is that if we live our life for progeny, for children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and we don't live our life for God, we have lived our life in vain. Even our great-great-great-grandchildren will not know who we are. But you know who will know? God will know. And when we live our life under the name of God, what we do on this earth and how we raise those kids or those grandkids or how we help with those nieces and nephews, that actually will matter for an eternity when God is in it. When God is not in it, the psalmist says, It's all vain. It is all empty, worthless. It amounts to nothing. It will not last. A life lived outside of the will of God will not last beyond these few short years we have in this world. But a life lived centered on God, matters for an eternity. So then, of course, the question, you know, that we're getting at here is what is our aim then? What is our aim? And what I want to say, based on what we see here, is that if our aim is God, if that's our aim, if our aim is God, we will not live in vain. If our Aim is God. We won't live in vain. You see, it rhymes. Did you catch that? Anybody catch that? I don't see you impressed at all. That's fine. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that impressive. But it's worth remembering. If you aim for God in your life, your life will not be in vain. So aim for God. That's kind of easy to say, I think. It's a short answer. We steep ourselves in God to the point that the things that the psalm mentions is undeniably saturated by God. Our homes saturated by God. Our communities saturated by God. Even as we gather at the table, we we were living a life and, and getting what we need for that life in a way that is saturated by God. Our families saturated by God. God is worthy of this. He is worthy of having our lives centered on him because he is glorious. What does that mean? He's weighty. That's literally what the word glorious means in Hebrew. It means to be weighty. He's important. He is important because he is the creator. He's great. How is he great? He knows everything. It's pretty impressive. And he's all powerful. That's amazing. That is who God is. He's also good. He's perfectly loving, just, and fair. He's good. And he's eternal. Who, this is who God is. And when we understand who God is, we'd say, well, of course, my life should be centered on this kind of God. But here's the amazing thing to me in all of this is that God would want you to center your life on him. What's this, what, what this passage is saying is that God wants to be involved in your life. He cares about your home. 
He cares about your family. He cares about the food on your table. He cares about your safety, your security. You matter to him. He wants to be involved in building your life. That kind of God, this God, this universe creating God wants to be involved in our lives. I think that is an incredible thing. So I say, okay, well, God wants to be involved. This God, good and great, glorious, all the G's, he wants to be involved in my life. How do I open the door and let him in? And that's essentially what this passage or this psalm is about. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, it is the Lord who grants sleep to those he loves. It is the Lord who gives blessings such as the blessing of children. It is the Lord, it is the Lord, it is the Lord. So then how, if this is the God we have and he wants in, how do we let him in? What does it mean to let God build the house, watch over our lives, provide our daily bread and, and bless our homes? With the new generation. What, is it, what does it mean that God is our aim so that we don't live our life in vain? What does that mean? It means we don't live unaware of God or who he is or that he exists. It means that we, we see how he's involved in our, in our lives. But it also requires of us one question that I would ask that you would ask. Think about this. It's a very simple question. We're going to get to how to break down that question in a minute, but it's a very simple but profound and powerful question that I want to ask you to ask. And it's this, what does God want? What does God want with my life? As he's helping build my home, as he's helping build my family, as he's helping me put food on the table, as he's helping with the safety and security of, of my individual being and those I'm responsible for, what does he want in the midst of all of that ordinary parts of life? What does he want? It's a simple question, but I think we need to ask it because... A lot of times we spend most of, I mean, hey, listen, guilty as charged here, but I spend a lot of time thinking about what I want. I will spend a fair amount of time thinking about what Marsha wants and what my kids want. And they say, really? It doesn't seem that way. But I do. I can spend time thinking about what you want as a church or a congregation. Think about what my parents may want of me or my in-laws. I can spend a lot of time thinking about what a lot of people want of me. But the real question is, not, listen, none of those what do people want or need from me are bad questions. They just always come second and are subservient to the question, which is what does God want? In order for me to know if I can fulfill all those other wants from all those other people in my life, including myself, I have to first know what does God want? So that becomes the fundamental foundational question in the staples of life and the most basic fundamental areas of life is what does God want? Now, of course, it's not enough to just ask that, right? You can't just ask that question and go about your day. My kids come to me and say, Dad, what do you want? And I say, here it is. Clean your room, 
do the, do the dishes, you know, uh, vacuum the carpet, and I give them a list, and then they just say, okay, I was just curious, thanks, thanks for letting me know. I'm gonna go play on the iPad now. I don't ask that question because I'm curious. I ask the question so that I can act, right? I'm asking that fundamental question so that once I know the answer, I can go and do that thing. Now again, I'm asking what does the God of the universe who created everything, including me, the God who loves me, the God who watches over my life day and night, I'm asking a God who knows me intimately, every square inch of my life, the ugly bits as well, I'm asking the God who still is for me after knowing all that about me, I'm asking that God. Not an angry tyrant God. Not a mad at me boss kind of God, not a disappointed father kind of God. I'm asking the God of the Bible, not of my imagination, not of my experience with humans in the world. I'm asking what the God of the Bible wants from me. Because I know he's for me. My heart is inclined to once I have the answer to put feet to it, to hear what God wants and then to live it out. That is essentially what the psalmist is talking about here. Don't leave God out of this stuff. Involve him in it and do it the way he's calling you to do it in the most fundamental areas of your life. So I want to give you some practical things to think about that you probably already see coming. As we ask, what does God want? We are asking what God wants of the three T's. What does God want of my time? What does God want of my talents? And what does God want of my treasures? We ask this question in these three areas of our life, and when we know the answer, we bend our will to his. I put time first, and this is not, you know, my layout. I've heard this time, talents, treasures, things for years. You may have too. But time always comes first. Why? It's the one thing that once it's gone, you can't get it back. Time. If you look at your calendar, if you look at your day, what it looked like based on what you spend time on, that God is at the center of your most fundamental and foundational areas of your life. This is not to make you feel guilty or bad, okay? It's just a way to gauge and say, you know what? Yeah, I need to work on that. And the Lord's going to help you. Remember, it's a big God who loves little bitty us. That's who we're talking to. We want to honor him, but we understand it's in the context of a loving relationship that we want to honor him. And one of the questions that we want to ask God is how should I spend my time? That limited, precious resource. And I could go down the list of things you already know, but perhaps it's worth mentioning that spending time with God. Most, I would encourage you to do that, you and God in the morning, with the Bible open and your prayer ready. If you've never done that before, I'd love to help you with that, but it doesn't take much and it doesn't take long. As you grow in your relationship with God, you spend more time reading, more time praying, more time with him. And that's a good thing. But if you've never done it, start small. Set your clock early. Five minutes before you would normally get up, you can jump in on the psalm reading plan, just two psalms. You can read that and pray in five minutes. 
Now that bar is low. Some of you, you really need to be setting the bar higher for yourself so that you can continue to grow and press into that relationship with God. But if you've never done it, set that bar low. But spend time with him in your daily devotions with him. Spend time with him daily, but spend time with him weekly. Most of us have the privilege of having two days off. One day for rest and relaxation, one day for worship. One day maybe for the honeydew list, but one day for worship. But always one day for worship. Always, always, always one day for worship. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. Kids get sick. Emergencies happen. Sometimes you're on vacation and you can't make it to a church on that day. It happens. But if we want to honor God in the fundamentals of our life, it's going to require our time commitment to him. And one of the most basic ones is to honor him to join his congregation, his church, and worship on a regular basis. Whether that's here or elsewhere. This is not a plug for First Baptist Kennedy, though I think if you're part of this church family, you know it's a great place to be. But there may be somewhere else for you. That's okay. But honor the Lord with your time daily in prayer and Bible reading and weekly as you worship with God's people on Sundays. Talents. God has given each and every one of us abilities. Some of them are natural abilities. Some of them are supernatural abilities. But God has gifted every one of us to do something that really blesses him and blesses other people. You know, we can see it most clearly on the stage. You know, you see people up here playing and singing. They're using their talents to honor you. You know, they get together on Wednesday night. They work on these songs so that they can do a really good job leading you in worship. They're using their talents. It's not always an upfront, outward talent. Sometimes it's a behind-the-scene, nobody-sees-it talent. But that doesn't matter. It's not about the praise. It's not about any kind of glory or honor for you. It's just you using what God has given you. Natural or supernatural, both come from God in a way that would be pleasing to him and would be for other people's good. So my question is, are you serving the Lord with the talents God has given you? That is a significant way to have God at the center of your most fundamental parts of your life is to give him your talents. And then the last one is your treasure. I learned very early on the importance of, of giving to my local church. This is my church. This is my family. And so I would take a portion of whatever money I had, which, you know, you're just starting out in life. is not much. And I learned you take a portion of that and you give it to God. Sometimes you start off with just a couple bucks. Eventually, I learned the importance of what a tithe was. that You give 10% to my church family. And it was a way of recognizing that God's given me 100% of what I have. And he's called me to give a percent or a small portion of that to continue his work through the local church. There's also treasures that some of you have beyond 10% that you can bless other organizations with. And some of you do that, and that's a wonderful thing. There's some really great places to, to invest financially in because they're doing wonderful, uh, God-honoring work. And I say praise God for that, do that. But the way I see it and the way I understand is that the fundamental part of it is it begins with my church, and I do that. Every time I get a paycheck, I write my tithe, I do... I've tried to get a little bit beyond 10% and do 11%, 12%, try to grow in that because I don't want to be stagnant in any area of my life. And that's what God calls us to do. How, how do we put feet to the question, what does God want? Everything I've just told you is outlined in Scripture. I didn't make up any of that. You know why we gather on Sunday. Just look in the Scripture. You will see the early church gathered on Sunday because it was the day the Lord Jesus was resurrected. 
So what was the Sabbath for the Jewish people, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that was their day of worship. For the Christian, it became a day of worship on Sunday. Now, if you went to a big church and they had a Saturday night service, are you doing something wrong by going? No. Go Saturdays. It doesn't really matter when you go. But there is symbolism here that there is a day that the Lord rose from the dead. And on that day, we gather to honor him, to worship him. That comes from the Bible. Gifts and spiritual gifts comes from the Bible. We read about that, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to believers to be used in honor of the church. Treasure over and over and over again in Scripture, we are challenged to honor God with the treasures that he has given us. I'm not making any of this stuff up, but these are just ways, fundamental ways, to put action to the answer to the question, what does God want? So when we see what God wants with our time, our talents, and treasures, then we have to act on that. Then we move into honoring God by not only asking the question because we're curious, but asking the question that we might then implement what we see in God's word is the answer to that question. That being said, I want to reiterate that we, I, am in awe that this God of the universe wants to be involved in this kind of nitty-gritty parts of our everyday life. I'm amazed by that. That God knows my name. It has nothing to do with I'm a pastor and I'm up here preaching. Has, he knows your name. He knows everybody's name. Every person in the world he knows, knows the number of hairs on their head, number of days on earth, and he cares about each and every single one of them. That is incredible to me. He wants to be involved in our life so much that he would not let even sin stand in his way. I don't know about you, but if someone sins against me, I can forgive them. They sin again, I could probably forgive them twice. They sin seven times. I think of what Jesus said. You forgive seven times seven. Okay, but what about eight, Lord? Like at some point, at some point, in my human nature, I'm just going to say enough's enough. I just, this is destructive. I can't keep doing this. Sometimes that's a right call for a human being, but for God, that moment never comes. For a child of his, he does not stop loving us. He did not let sin stand in the way of a relationship for him to be involved in my everyday, ordinary life. He didn't let sin stand in the way of that. He sent his son into the world to die that I might have a right relationship with him now and forever. And what's incredible is when I was thinking about the life of Jesus, I think he did all this stuff for God's glory and for my good. All the things we're talking about. He gave up shelter to travel from town to town to tell people the good news of the kingdom of God. Matthew 8, 20 says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. He's referring to himself. Traveling from town to town, I have no shelter. I have no home. He gave up security. He left heaven for earth. He gave up even the comfort of an earthly home to go to Jerusalem. You know what happened in Jerusalem. Jesus knew what would happen in Jerusalem. He left safety and security to go to the place he would die for us. Matthew 20, 18, Jesus' words. He says, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, again referring to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death. He gave up shelter. He gave up safety and security. He even gave up food. 
He prepared himself to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death in 40 days of fasting. Fasting means no eating. We read about that in Matthew 4, 1 and 2. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He is being prepared. Anytime God wants to use you, he's going to prepare you. And even say, he'll even use Satan to be a part of that preparation. Kind of an incredible thing. But what Jesus does is he foregoes even food for 40 days to prepare himself for this mission that God had given him in the world. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the scripture says what is obvious. He was hungry. He went hungry. Part of his mission for us, for our good and for God's glory. He even risked alienation from his family. We talk about the blessing of children. If anybody was blessed, was it not Mary and Joseph? Were they not given dreams and visions of what Jesus would be? And they were in awe of it. So this is part of the scripture. It's incredible. When Matt, in, uh, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus has grown up a little bit. I believe he's about 12 years old. His family travels to Jerusalem to honor God uh, through the uh, festival, the Passover festival. And when they leave, Jesus stays behind in the temple. He was willing to put distance between him and his family in order to honor God, to glorify him and for our good. Luke 2, 48 and 49 says it like this. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I just imagine that conversation between Joseph and Mary. You had Jesus, right? No, no, no. I thought you had Jesus. I don't have Jesus. Well, where is he? And they anxiously searched for him. Verse 49, why were you searching for me, Jesus asks. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Do you see where I'm going with this? Jesus was willing to leave behind shelter. He was willing to leave behind safety and security. He was even willing to alienate his relationship with his parents. Later we'll read the same thing happens with his brothers. We finally find out in John 7, 5, his brothers don't even believe in Jesus. He's willing to do all of that to glorify God and to give his life for our good. This is God in the flesh. This is the God that knocks on the door and says, I want to come into your everyday, ordinary life. All the hard parts of this I have done to open the way for you, for me. What can my response be other than, God, what, what do you want? What, do you, what would honor you in the way I spend my time? What would honor you in the way I use my talents? What would honor you in the way that I use the treasures you have given me? That's the God that asks us. To not live a life in vain. A life lived on the basis of what others want or even what I want. But to live a life based on that question, God, what do you want? When we make God our aim, our life will not be in vain. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this, this morning and uh, not even as I... Share these things. I know each of our lives, my life, 
included, we fall short of these things. We're, we're glad, God, that you don't base your love for us on our performance. And yet, Father, we want to strive to involve you more and more in the fundamental areas of our life. That when the shelter is built, we see that you are involved. When we're safe and secure, we see that we have you to thank. When there's food on the table, we know the ultimate source of that food is you. When we look our children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews in the eye, we see that they are a blessing from you. That in every fundamental area of our life, God, we are asking the question and letting your word answer the question, what do you want from us? And we honor you with it. Help us to grow in that and to enjoy a relationship with you that we know is based not in what we've done, but what in Christ has done. This we ask in Jesus' name.